Okay. So we're looking at the book of James, a faith that works. And that's the theme for this week, right? Launching and launching our faith. And I, I've got to say, it's, such, it's so interesting that when you come to camp, it seems like every speaker and everything that happens just keeps building. And you hear somebody say something, and you're like, wow, I was going to talk about that. So if you're hearing things that you've heard before already this week, just know that um, we did not all email each other to say, hey, what are you wearing? Um, or what are you speaking on? We just trusted that God would give us the message that we each needed um, from the morning Bible studies to uh, the evening worship. So I told you that we would do an overview. So what I've given you is an outline. And, and one of the first things you want to do in inductive Bible study is you want to read all the way through an entire book and kind of get the gist of it. You want to kind of get the feel. You want to put your fingers through it and investigate it a little bit. But we don't have time right now to read through all five chapters of the book of James. So we're going to trust you to do that on your own later. But what I want to do is just kind of jump in and, and talk a little bit about the introduction. So we're going to start right at the beginning, James 1.1, which, which reads... Um, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Do you know how much you just learned? You learned a lot. I don't know if you know that or not, but you did. So what we want to do is we want to kind of work through this a little bit. What, we, what do we see? we see James introducing himself to his audience. So we're asking of the text, who, what, when, where, why, and how? Well, who is it? It's James. James who? A bondservant. A bondservant of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who's Jesus Christ? The Lord. Wow, look how much you learned. You got a lot. But we want to know a little bit more about who James is. So let's look at that. Who is this James? Now, there are, there's three different James in the Bible, in the New Testament, I should say. We have, can you name them? Do you know who they are? James, the brother of Jesus. James, the son of? Alpheus. I'm glad, I wanted somebody else to say that because I don't like Bible names that are really complicated and hard. Who else? James and John, the sons of thunder right no Zebedee yes the sons of Zebedee yes so we can see that there's you know there's more than one James so we need to investigate which James is it that wrote this well tradition holds that this was actually the epistle that was written by James the brother of Jesus and they have a whole bunch of reasons for believing that. We've got some scripture references where we're gonna, we can look at and see that James uh, was the brother of Jesus, that he had a family, he had, he had a mother and a father, he had brothers and sisters. We see them kind of splattered throughout the Gospels. And then we see James active in the book of Acts. Now we want to, we want to recognize that in, in this study of James, that first of all, this is a letter, right? This is, this is a letter. 
James is writing to somebody, and we're going to get into who that somebody is in a second. But it wasn't just written to be like, hey, hi, how you doing? This is serious business. When the apostles sat down and they wrote a letter, it was serious business. And they needed to identify themselves to the churches who were dispersed. And so that is why he's saying, I am James, I am an apostle, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, historians will tell us, and there are some that will say one thing and another another. So I know that some of you may say, well, when I was in school, I learned. You probably did. And, and it may be true. And maybe what the information I have isn't as accurate as yours. It's okay. Because like we learned in the earlier session, we're still discovering things regularly about the Bible and about the biblical times and the biblical culture. But we believe, many scholars believe, that the, this letter that James wrote was actually the first epistle. That it predates, many historians believe that this letter predated the Gospels. And that it quite possibly could be known as the source known as Q. And so when the Gospel writers were writing their Gospels, they used sources. And the letter of, from James very likely could have been one of the sources that they referred to in writing their Gospels to trigger their memories. So isn't that interesting? Now we also know that James, as the brother of Jesus, was not one of the 12 disciples that followed him throughout, throughout you know, Galilee and all the places that Jesus went. But as a disciple but he was present but he was not a believer at the time of Jesus life so I want to find my other note okay so let's look at some of these let's look at Matthew I didn't put that one up there I don't think all right I put Matthew 13 up there but look but Matthew 125 is a scripture reference about Mary and Joseph. Okay, this is, this is where Mary has, Mary is approached by the angel. She's told, you're going to have a son. We know his name is Jesus. We've got that part of the story down, right? And he says very specifically to her, or to Joseph, excuse me, that you will keep her a virgin until. So the word until as small as it is, those five little letters are important. Because she did not remain the Virgin Mary her entire life. She was the virgin birth. She provided the virgin birth. And so that's the starting point for that. So those that say, I never knew that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. Yes, because Mary was a married woman. So it would have only been natural for them to have other children. In John 2.12, which I don't think I have up there either, we see that the public ministry of Jesus begins and that his mother and his brothers and the disciples are all there. Now there's a distinction made in that between Jesus' brothers and his disciples. So we know that those are, are his half-brothers that are present there and not just disciples, not just brethren, but his brothers because there's, if they were part of the disciples, whom he called later his brothers, they, he called them later his family. But at this point, 
he has separated them out in what he has called them. Then in Matthew 12, 46 through 50, again, Mary and the boys, <laughs> they want to speak to Jesus. And you can imagine this little family meeting that they had. And he pulled them together and he's, and, 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 and they, you know, Jesus, we really need to talk to you about this little crazy behavior you've been having. You know, walking around and, you know, miracles and everything, really, it's quite embarrassing. And we're really concerned for you. And he's like, what are you talking about? I am here to do my father's will. I now call these men my brothers because they're following me. And his earthly ministry is in full launch. In Mark 6, 3, that's a reference back to the uh, Matthew 13 verses that we have, is that we also see him again speaking to his half-brothers and sisters, and they're following, they're following him around. But they did not believe. They did not believe. So James, the brother of Jesus, came to believe at some point. So what point do we think that was? If we turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and we always know that Acts follows the Gospels because now the faithful are acting, right? And it says, now, remember they're in the upper room, they're waiting, they're waiting because Pentecost has not come yet and they've gathered. Now let's look at who's sitting there with them. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. At some point, Mary and his brothers got on board with what was happening with Jesus. They finally got it. And James believed and became a vital part of that ministry. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 7. If I marked that. Does somebody have that? There we go. I bought a new Bible before camp, and I've got to tell you, my other Bible, I would say 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and it practically opened to the page. Right? You ever do that? Buy a new Bible and you go, ah. It's just not the same. Nothing's on the same page it used to be. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, this is actually one little verse taken out of a, of a bigger thing. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This is about the appearance. They're retelling the story here in 1 Corinthians 15 of the times that Jesus appeared. So they're sharing, this is a gospel opportunity that they're writing here in the letter to the Corinthians. And he appeared to James, who is the brother of Jesus. So Jesus isn't going to just appear to an unbelieving brother, right? He, he was appearing to the believers to encourage them and reinforce um, for them who he was. pretty important. How about 
where we see James ending up in the church after, after that, after the belief. We've got Pentecost. We've got the, we've got the church gathered. But then we have the church scattered, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But who does James become? James actually becomes a leader in the church. So again, we see him in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where he's present before Pentecost, waiting, praying, devoting himself to prayer. And then we see him again. Where do we see him next? Acting in leadership. Acts chapter 12. I'm going to move that up a little bit. Acts 12, 17. This is actually, Peter has been released from prison and they go knocking on the door and, and uh, Rhonda opens and, and he's there and James is there. James again is called out by name. So we see him leading prayer at the home of Rhonda. He's leading that small group. Rhonda, isn't it Rhonda? Rhoda. Rhoda. I always say it wrong. I think, I, you know, I don't know why. Anyway, Rhoda. So he's there. He's there. They're praying. He's leading a prayer meeting for, on Peter's behalf when Peter is set free. And he runs back to Rhoda's house, and boom, there, there he is. And she thinks it's Peter's ghost. And she almost shuts the door on him. She's kind of scared. And she goes, and she gets James. And James is there. So we see this wonderful, wonderful unfolding of events in the life of James as he's coming into who he is. Then later in Acts in 15 this is at a point in Acts 15 where the church has now been spreading to the Gentiles and James and several of the other disciples who walked with Jesus, the, the now called the apostles, they're still in Jerusalem. They're, they are the Jerusalem council. And they are um, kind of leading, and they're sending. They've, they've been sending missionaries. They're checking up on the churches. They're doing this kind of thing. And it's, it's so interesting because, you know, James, James was not a believer at the time of Jesus, and yet what's he doing? He's leading the council. So the question comes to them, what do we do with these Gentiles? And James is the one who speaks with wisdom. So in chapter 15, verses 13 through 21, they've all been arguing. No, they need to be circumcised. No, they don't. No, we need this. No, we don't. Did I lose it? Okay. And after they had all stopped speaking, because Paul, Paul's back here in Jerusalem, and he's excited about this. He's excited about what's happening with the Gentiles and that even the Gentiles are believing this is amazing. But everybody's not so sure. And what rules are we going to make them follow? And what about the laws? And, James, and, and then in verse 13, after they'd stopped speaking, James answered and saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from taking among the Gentiles a people for his name. With the words of the prophets, I agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, 
and all the Gentiles who are called by, name, by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Isn't that wonderful? That James was given wisdom. So we see this man who was not following Jesus in his earthly ministry come to belief in Jesus as his Savior, who then rises to leadership in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, who God has bestowed with wisdom and understanding and an ability to lead his people and to train them up. This is an amazing thing that has happened. He can do this in the life of anybody. Anybody. The most lost person in the world, the person who is the atheist to almost their dying breath, there is still hope for that person to come to Christ. It is not too late until it's done. We have to keep praying for our family. Do you think maybe it broke Jesus' heart just a little bit? Can you imagine being the savior of the world and looking at your family at Christmas, your birthday party every year, and knowing that they don't get it? That every year you went to Jerusalem and you saw your mother, your brothers, and your sisters there at Passover to bring their offering before the altar to have their lamb slain and the only lamb they needed was their brother can you imagine how his heart hurt can you imagine knowing that you hold the very truth that they so desperately need and being rejected I know you know because I know that as I'm sharing this with you there's somebody's picture that popped into your mind you're thinking of your mother your father your brother your sister your granddaughter your daughter your son your nephew your your next door neighbor and you're thinking I know the key I'm holding the Savior in my heart and they can't see it they're blind to it it is not too late until it is over. It is not too late. I have family members that reject, 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 argue, argue, argue. And I'm telling you, it, it wears my fuse very short. Very short. And I try not to argue. I try to just speak truth. I try to be gentle. But there are times when family members have said things that are so blasphemous, so horrible, so full of lies, so full of hatred towards the gospel, that I confess to you, I have not handled those situations well. And I've had to ask their forgiveness. 
that's not easy. It is not easy asking somebody's forgiveness when you know you're right. But it's not forgiveness for the truth that I'm asking. It's the forgiveness for my attitude in which I brought the truth that I'm asking. Jesus didn't need to do that, did he? He handled it pretty well all along the way, every step of the way. He just kept plugging along, doing what he was supposed to do, until the one day James and his mother and brothers and sisters had their aha moment. When was it, do you think? Do you think it was when they saw him arrested? Do you think it was when they saw him whipped? Do you think it was when he was hanging on the cross? Do you think they saw it at the moment the nails pierced the skin and they remembered the writings of the Old Testament that he would be pierced for our transgressions that he would be whipped for our sins. I kind of feel like it may have been that moment. When the reality of all that he had said and all that he had done was full bore. Full bore. I can't help but believe that. We know that James led a life that glorified God because James found himself martyred for the cause of Christ. Josephus, I have this in your handout, I believe. Josephus, who's an ancient historian. Now, if you don't own the book of Josephus, you, you really need to get one. <laughs> you can get them on Amazon for like 20 bucks. The, the complete works and probably bookstores, Christian bookstores have this but um, Josephus was not a Christian he was just a historian and I think that that is a powerful thing that we have a non-believing historian writing truth for us look what he says this is what he writes of James' death in 62 AD and when the high priest stepped into power after the death of the governor of the, of governor Festus he called a meeting of the Sanhedrin so we've got this high priest that's in opposition to the church right and he calls a high, the meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was who was called the Christ whose name was James and some others James is singled out and when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. James did not look back once he decided to follow. He gave it all. And that is why he deserves the title of bondservant. That's why he can, be call, he can call himself a bondservant of Christ because he was so fully committed to the cause that was before him that he dedicated himself to it in the form of a bondservant. So the idea of a bondservant is really interesting. 
And probably many of you know this, have heard this, have read about this before, but in the Old Testament, in the law, there were reasons that people were slaves for a lot, for a lot of reasons. You were a captive in a time of war, you owed a debt to somebody, so you were enslaved, you were an indentured servant, you know, there were all these things that happened. But at the time of your release from that servanthood or that being that slave to a master, you were given an opportunity to choose to remain in the household of your master. And how you did that, and there was no turning back from this. Once you said you were a bond servant, a bond slave, you were a bond slave for life because you took your ear and you went to the doorpost or the door frame of the house and an awl and you nailed yourself to the house to pierce your ear. And when people would see you on the street and they would see that your ear was pierced, they would say this, he must have a great master because he chose to remain in the household of his master. He loved his master and his master loved him. And there's no turning back. It's, a, it's so cool. Like, there's no turning back from that. You're bearing the mark of the bondservant when you do that. It was visible for all to see. And it was painful. It, was, it wasn't all sanitary like going to Claire's and getting your ears pierced, ladies. It wasn't like going to a tattoo parlor and getting your ear uh, numbed and having your ear gauged. It, it was nasty stuff. It was painful. But you dedicated yourself. So when James says... And many of the other epistles, when you read them and you see the writings and they start out, you know, Paul, a bondservant, Peter, a bondservant, you know, take that seriously. That means for them, there is no turning back. That means for them, they're in it till death. They're in it regardless of the cost. So our question, the question that I have for myself regularly and last night it came to me again as Matt was speaking about the postcards and what are you going to write down for me the question was if I'm truly going to be a bond servant what household do I need to walk away from so that I can be truly a bond servant to Christ what are we willing to give up what part of our lives are we willing to walk away from to nail ourselves to that doorpost? Because that is serious business. And that means that you can't be, as Matt said earlier this morning, the, uh, what do you call it, something, the atheist, the help, practical atheist in church on Sunday, but practically an atheist the rest of the week. And that was from a sermon by... Help me out. Who was there? <laughs> I can't hear. You guys, I only really hear out of my right ear anymore. <laughs> so, C.S. Lewis. Uh, and you know what? I wrote it down, but in my notes over there. So C.S. Lewis said that. A practical atheist. We can't be that, can we? Either we're in 
or we're out. We're either a bondservant or we're not. Okay. So let's look at some of that practical stuff about the servanthood. And these are things that Jesus taught about the servants. In Matthew 10, 24, he said, A servant is not above his master. So what should that be saying to us about our servanthood to Christ? Who's the most important person in the room? Not me. Mark 10, 44, And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his bondservant, what is your position in the world? We're there to serve others. We're there to be the slave for those that don't know. John 13, 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. What does that tell us about Jesus and the position that he had when he was in his earthly ministry? What do you think? Thoughts? What do you think Jesus is saying there about himself? God is greater. The cause that he came for, that God, the mission God sent him on, is greater than his own will and his own desires. Because over and over we see Jesus say, I'm not doing my will, I'm doing my Father's will. So even Jesus subjected himself to the greater authority. John 15, verses 15 and 20 no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He's calling them friends. They're still servants. They're still in a submissive position. But think about the bondservant that would choose to nail himself to the doorpost. He loves his master, and his master loves him. You cannot be a bondservant to somebody without relationship. There has to be a relationship there for the commitment to be made. You can't just casually say, yeah, I'm a bond servant. Yeah, it's cool. Say I got pierced. It's awesome. It, it, there's relationship. Because when they see you again, when they see you with that piercing, it's giving a testimony of who your master is. It says something about him. So the way you behave in public as the bond servant reflects the attitude of the household, right? So that's a two-way street too. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves but Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. Now they're putting themselves in submission to the church. They're saying we're here as the bondservants of Christ to serve you. The leadership 
is a servant to all, to all in the church. Again, don't take the role of bondservant lightly. It's serious, serious business. Galatians 1.10, For I am now seeking the favor, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Because you can't serve two gods. You can't serve the world and serve God. You have to choose. A bondservant can't be the head of his own household. His master is the head of his household. I can't operate in ministry to please other people. I have to operate in ministry at Positive Alternatives here at Bayshore Camp. Other things that I'm involved with in the community as a, as a Bible study leader, I am not there to give people what I think they want to hear. I must do what Jesus would do. I must say what Jesus would say. I, I sometimes struggle with doing that with grace and mercy, but that's why I have Debbie, because, <laughs> because Debbie is one of those people that I look to and I say, oh, I need to be more like Debbie because she's full of grace and mercy. And she teaches me that. So then I can teach that to others. Because we need to be learning from one another too, right? So we submit ourselves to one another. We submit ourselves to the authority of God. We, we look for those characteristics in other bondservants that we want to that we want to emulate, that we want to, we want to become part of who we are in our Christian walk. How about Ephesians 6.6? 6? Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. How do we look in our churches? Are we operating in our church to please men, we operating to please God. You know, it's the old, it's the age-old cliche about the color of the carpet, right? Do I really need to care about the color of the carpet? No. But I really care about the Sunday school material that's being taught. That is a fight I will die over. Let's use good material. Let's give the kids the word. Let's have the truth spoken from the pulpit. If you care about the color of the carpet, God bless you. Because we need people to care about that. That's just not my role. My role isn't to care about that. But that may be your role. Because we still need to create an environment that expresses caring and warmth and welcoming and all that kind of stuff. Not my gift. That's okay. If the carpet is your deal, the carpet can be your deal. But let's not let the carpet rule the hearts of men. Colossians 4.1. Masters. Oh, now we're going to get into the masters. Grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So there he's speaking to, obviously, people in the church 
who are the wealthier people. They have slaves, they have bond servants possibly. And he's saying to them, remember, you might be the master of your castle, but there's a palace <laughs> in heaven where there's another ruler and make sure that you're serving him before you're serving yourself. So, this is all for the cause of Christ. James, the brother of Christ, a bond servant, writing a letter to the early church to people he must know. He's not just writing to a random town somewhere. He must know who they are, must have heard of them, must know that they're there. So who are they? Who, who are they? Well, that same verse tells us that they are from 12 tribes that have been dispersed. So that's kind of interesting. Because during the time of Hosea, which is when a major dispersion happened, the 12, uh, 10 of the tribes were scattered during the time of Hosea. And we read about that in Deuteronomy, and we see Jeremiah speaks about that. And in John 7.35, this was something I had never seen before. But John 7.35 does somebody have that fast? Because I didn't mark it. It's, it's just such a small, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> See, this is where I need Matt in here singing. What does it say? Yes. So the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Because now Jesus is in trouble. Right? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? The dispersion. This is before Acts. Who's he talk who, who are they talking about? He's talking about the tribes that were scattered during the time of the Old Testament that went out during the time of Hosea. And then again, you know, when we have the Babylonian captivity, we have all this stuff happening. They get taken away. People move back. People go to other countries. They go live here. They go live there. And they're learning all these other cultures, and they're learning all these other languages. So... Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to the Hebrew people in Israel. So he's in Jerusalem, he's in Galilee, he's in all these places. You know, he's kind of up and down the river and crisscross the lake and that kind of thing. But his primary audience is to the Jews. In fact, when the woman comes to him and, and begs for healing and he says... The time for the Gentiles isn't yet. Go away. And she says, hey, even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And so he healed her because he said his ministry at that time was to the Jews. So they're saying, if we get rid of him, is he going to go hide in these other countries and start preaching to these other 
Jews that are living in these other places. So the dispersion has happened, which we see, what do we see in Pentecost? The day of Pentecost. The Jews came from all over and were gathered, right? And they heard when the Holy Spirit came down, Pentecost happened, they heard the gospel in their own tongues. Well, they had different tongues than just Hebrew because they'd been living in other countries, so they had learned other languages. So they're hearing the gospel spoken in a way that they could understand it, and they were amazed. So this is also a very prophetic thing because in Psalm 147, verse 2, I believe it is, it's one of the promises that God gives us in that psalm is that he's going to gather them back from the dispersion. He's going to call back all the Jews from all the nations and call them back to Jerusalem. And we've seen that happen in part that's partially fulfilled because we now see Israel as a nation. We see Jerusalem as the capital. This is happening slowly, but there will be a day that that promise will be fulfilled. So again, we saw that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when they were told, right, they were told that they would go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all of the world to the remotest parts of the earth, right? Yeah, but in the meantime, they were quite content to sit <laughs> and wait. So it's interesting to me that Saturday night, Jason talked about God stomping on your sandcastle and how he used the tower, God used the Tower of Babel to scatter the people so that they would stop thinking of themselves as God, and he scattered, he scattered them. And then we see God make a promise to Abraham that he would be a nation with many children and that he would be the father of nations. And not just a nation, but nations that all the nations would be blessed because of him. So we see then the story through Abraham of, of course, the lineage that leads to Christ. But what happens between Abraham and Jesus? In and out, in and out, in and out, in and out of the land, right? The promised land. And every time... There's a remnant left. There's a bunch that have been dispersed. So this is happening over and over and over again. So the fact that they're gathered for Pentecost is a big deal from all these nations. This is a big deal. And then, of course, as we said, Pentecost happens. But then what happens in Acts 7? This is huge. Because up to this point, the church, the church is growing leaps and bounds in Jerusalem. They're multiplying. We see in Acts, you know, the first four chapters of Acts, that they're adding thousands to their numbers, and they're one community, and they're sharing as they had a need, and it's this great thing, and woohoo! I mean, it's like, it's like party central, right? 
because they're so excited about the gospel and they're prospering in that in, in not a monetary way, but in a spiritual way. There's this great awakening that is happening and the gospel is filling up Jerusalem. Now we've got some people that are a little scared. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are not exactly happy. The Sanhedrin are not happy. Nobody's happy about this gospel because what? Because they don't want to serve that master. They want to be their own master. And so now this movement is a threat. So what happens in Acts 7 starting at 54? Stephen has just preached the gospel. Imagine this, you're preaching the gospel one minute. People are hearing the truth, sometimes maybe for the first time, others maybe it's the tenth time they've heard it. But Stephen's preached the gospel. And it says in verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Because what are they doing? They're killing him. They're killing him for the gospel. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. These are the people James is writing to. They have fled Jerusalem. They are hiding in cities outside of Jerusalem, in countries outside of Jerusalem. They're spreading further and further because as Saul seeks to persecute the church, not just imprison them, but they are dying for the cause of Christ. God is using a persecution of the believers, of the faithful, of the bond servants to take that gospel out. If Bayshore Camp was raided right now and it was decreed I'm sorry, but you can't own a Bible, you can't pray, you can't anything. We're going to start bowing down to this symbol. This is the only God anybody in this country is going to be allowed to serve. And we heard that there was a group of believers here at Bayshore Camp. 
Some would be captured. Some would be killed. Many would be scattered. What is the thing that you are going to take with you if you are scattered? What is the one thing? You won't have time to run back to your cabin, your camper, your room. You have one thing that you can take. It is what is written in your heart. James took the time, along with the other apostles, with the other biblical writers, they took the time to write it down so that we could put it in our hearts, so that when we need it, it is there. So when you're scattered, when you're at the hospital waiting for the diagnosis and you're scattered, that word is there. When you're confronted at a family reunion, that word is there because you've been scattered. It's okay. He is always with you because he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your master and you are his bondservant. And he will love you and he will care for you and he will watch over you. Submit ourselves, therefore, to him.